Well, we are continuing our study through 1 John, so if you want to turn there, we will be looking at 1 John chapter 4. But while you're turning there, I want us to consider this, that mankind is a very self-aware creature. Consider all of us, whether great scholars or, or as Greg mentioned, apparently the third grade education. Um, and if you weren't in Sunday school, you don't get that joke. That's okay. You missed out. But nevertheless, right, we have these various walks of life, where we've come from, what we do, but we've all pondered these great mysteries of life. For example, how did we get here? What happens after I, I die? And again, here in the church context, we have pretty solid answers to that. But that still probably doesn't stop many from asking this question, who am I? Many might wonder and struggle with a strong sense of identity. Am I brave? Why do I have this trait instead of that trait? Why don't I have the talents that somebody else has? Because we tend to look around and make comparisons with others. Now, sometimes this act of comparing ourselves might bring us to better ourselves, while other times we might look around and go, man, I'm worthless. I don't measure up. And yet, all sorts of these feelings and questions we have from that one question of who am I have been answered from the pages of philosophy and psychology Many have been suggested, yet this morning our text provides us an answer to that question, who am I? And our text makes a very clear statement, the Christian is a person of love. So the big idea from my text, excuse me, from our text this morning that we'll be exploring is this, the Christian ought to love. Now, We've looked at this word ought, but ought in this passage in particular holds something significant. And John has already told us that we're commanded to love. That imperative command, but now he's moving to the indicative. How we can obey this command because of who we actually are and what we are. So to love is to be Christian. So this morning we're going to understand how the Christian ought to be a person of love in three areas. First, we will look at how we are to be love in the testing of spirits. Second, we will see how we are to love because of who we are, as in the redeemed in Christ. And thirdly and lastly, we will look and see how our love is made perfect. So verses 1 through 6, let's go ahead and take a quick look at those. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he 
who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and do not listen to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know that the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So verses 1 through 6 begin this chapter with this call to not believe every spirit. Rather, test every spirit. And it's in these opening verses that, again, this theme that John has been drawing out throughout his letter uh, points again to two distinct groups. We test the spirits to see if they are from God or if they're from or if they're not from God, rather. Notice, again, that we're not talking about from God and on all these various different teams. No, you're either from God or you are not. There are no other options. False prophets, while potentially coming up with different claims, different theories, different ideas, are essentially all one and the same. They are someone that denies God. Someone that leads people to a false God. And we've covered this in depth in John chapter 2, 18 through 25. And yet, verse 2 here establishes a key to understanding this reality very clearly. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So in John's day, there was a false teaching called docetism. Essentially, this teaching, docetism, teaches that uh, the eternal Christ did not take on flesh. And it further explained that the humanity of Jesus is, is more of an illusion or a metaphor. It's not really, um, as, as we would understand it, the God-man. But John clearly refutes this when he writes in his gospel, especially, in our, specifically, excuse me, in verses 1, 14, and the word became flesh. See, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, became the God-man, fully man, fully God. Yet, any system or religion that exists of this false prophet, if they contradict the incarnation, makes them a false prophet because they deny the incarnation of Christ. However, it's, it's fascinating when you look at the world of religion, everyone has to incorporate Jesus. They do this because Jesus' impact is way too vast in human history to ignore. The Eastern religions and New Age movements claim Jesus is essentially an enlightened one, another Buddha figure, if you will, um, someone that is our model, our example of what we can all accomplish through, again, doing the right works as prescribed in those false teachings. In Islam, Jesus' divinity is just outright erased and ignored. He's merely a prophet, according to the teachings of Islam. Jehovah's Witnesses, while they claim him, they believe that Jesus was created by the Father, which, for my church history folks, recognize that this is a form of Arianism, an ancient heresy 
dealt with many times and in many forms, and in our current age, Jehovah's Witnesses take that. And essentially, since he's created by the Father, he is of a lesser deity, once again denying the incarnation. And then, lastly, at least in our popular world today, we have the Mormons. And their teaching on God is convoluted, but we could say, simplified, or to summarize it here, is that the Father was once a man, ascended to Godhood, and that Jesus and Satan are brothers and literal children of this man who became God that they call the Father. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that's a good summary there too as well. And uh, obviously, if you follow this to its logical end, Jesus is not eternal in that case at all. All of these false teachers deny the truth of Scripture very clearly. They twist and they misrepresent the Word of God, and this is why we must test these spirits. We must evaluate the claims of others. We need to ask, is this what others teach? Is what they teach in line with Scripture? If so, if they do teach in line with Scripture, then we can agree with our text that says, we are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. However, if after examining these claims, like the ones I mentioned or other claims out there, we find them to be contrary to Scripture, then we must say, again, what our text says, whoever does not listen to us, excuse me, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, I understand how my words might seem to our world today, very narrow-minded and arrogant, saying, if you don't agree with me, then you're a false teacher. However, I'm not merely crafting these thoughts from my own cleverness or from any personal feelings I might have on the matter. No, these claims I'm proclaiming come from the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. See, false prophets are not new. As John has said, they've already gone into the world, and he could be literally talking about the false teachers from his day, as I've already made reference, but he could also be reflecting on those that plagued ancient Israel. Either way, understanding that there are false prophets and they have been around for a long time. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4 says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. 
See, Moses' warning to ancient Israel is a warning like John in his letter that we just read, and we have to examine the message of a prophet. Because as Deuteronomy warns, even if they do something miraculous, they can still lead you astray. They can still lead you in the wrong direction and encourage you to worship a false god. There is a clear connection from the ancient inspired prophets of Israel's past to the authors of the New Testament and even to preachers and pastors today. We must, must test what is said by all pastors and teachers. We are to measure their message we hear to the word of God and verify that they are speaking the same beautiful message of Scripture. So this test, this testing of their, of their claims, of their profession, is an act of love. If I hear a false teacher and I warn others, then I'm exercising love. Imagine this scenario. There's a small child running into oncoming traffic. Is that narrow-minded to warn them and to call out and to even reach for them to pull them away from that danger? No, of course not. Yet, some in our world will tell us today that if I'm claiming that what they're saying is not in line with who Jesus is and that they're wrong and it's unloving to say that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is the only way to salvation, They'll claim that that is unloving. To summarize this point, I love this Dr. Walter Martin quote. And if you're unfamiliar with Dr. Walter Martin, he's a theologian. He uh, actually, I believe we still have one of his books in the bookstore, Kingdom Kingdom of the Cults. He dealt with the cults and and various other heresies and teachings in in his day. Uh, And this is what he, he wrote. You're in a cult... I love you, and I want you out of it and with Christ. So we test the spirits because we love our neighbors. So now knowing that we're, that we're to test the spirits because of our love, let us now look back, or excuse me, let's look to the next point. Understanding love in the light of the nature of God. So let's look back to our text, verses 7 through 12. Is this next passage we need to consider? I'll read just a little bit of this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever love loves has been born of God and knows God. So this is where we find our big picture idea, our big point for this passage is to be found here and explains how we can train ourselves now to exercise and to practice this love that I've been just referencing in the first part here. So first, love is of God. The word for love in this passage is agape love. Agape is this love that is unconditional, a love that is selfless, Agape is God's love and is always 
unconditional. And this is the love that Christians should aspire to have, even, even though we fall short. The statement, God is love, expresses that agape love is the very nature of God. It's who he is. We cannot aspire to love without knowing God. If we want to love, then we must know God. Love is the motivation for sending Jesus to take on humanity as this promised Redeemer. Verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, that we have loved God. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, the Father sent the Son, and the Son willingly went because of love. The Son dies, takes on our sin, and appeases the wrath of God because God loves us. This is the awesome, redemptive work of God, and His redemptive work is this ultimate expression of God's perfect and infinite love. I love that we sang in this morning. His love's never-ending. Infinite love. Mm. God redeems his people because of his love that he has for us. He pays this ultimate price because he loves. God's great love is on its full display at the cross. Because ponder, the cross is where the wrath and judgment of God collides with God's mercy and grace. Why? Because of love. So therefore, there's a change in those who have received God's redeeming love. Transformation. A new heart that has come with God's love in redemption is what enables us now to love like God. Again, still not perfectly, but in a new, more selfless way. We're indwelt by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We can now want to love those with whom we had potentially had very little in common with. Right? Even still, some people may push our buttons, as they say, or get under our skin. And there are some that are just difficult to be around. But with this renewed heart, we can, can love them. So, Saren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian, and philosopher from the 19th century provides a key to enable us to understand how we can love more and more like God. See, in every relationship and even casual encounters, we look at the other person through a kind of lens. 
Kierkegaard calls this term, excuse me, this lens, the middle term. So we insert uh, between us and the other person. God loves his redeemed because he looks at us through the lens of Jesus. He sees Jesus' righteousness. More physical or practical example is I love my wife. When I look at her, the middle term is commitment, family, shared values and experiences. Looking at her through these lenses and these middle terms enables me to love her even when we disagree, which we do. (coughs) Or my son, I love him, and I see him through different middle terms. He's my child. He's my son. I have hopes for him. He's the continuation of the shoot's line. These middle terms keep me loving him even when he blatantly disregards instruction or he blatantly does things to annoy me. All the parents are laughing. Yes, it happens. But in every relationship, there are possible middle terms that we could use. In my relationships with Christy, my wife, or Ezra, my son, these middle terms are strong. But, but, what if middle terms are preferences? Or a social advantage? Or a hobby? Or something else that is just fleeting? If the lens which I look at a person changes, then likely my love for them is going to change. I have to imagine, we've all experienced this, I know I have, that we've lost friends over the years. Something changed. Either something about myself or something in them changed and that middle term changed. It wasn't as lasting as maybe we had hoped or thought. So it's in this middle term through which uh, we see others that prevents us from loving neighbor as we ought. Aha, excellent. Just as it says in verse 11. So consider this chart. You have obviously me, because we're going to personalize it. Common interests, right? Fleeting things. Then to our neighbor brings us to a conditional love. Me, something I dislike. Neighbor causes me to have a lack of love. And then lastly, me, but if I look through the lens of God, neighbor now is an unconditional love. So let's look at that. So then when I look at neighbor through the lens of God, now I see neighbor as an image bearer of God. A person created and loved by God. As Psalm 119 declares, they are fearfully and wonderfully knit in their mother's womb. And so I see him or her, this neighbor, not as someone to be used, ignored, envied, or even as an irritation, but someone valuable to God and someone God wants me to value as well. So when God is this middle term, 
for how we love. We now view a person not based on their interest or my interest or their traits or my traits. Rather, we view them as an image bearer of God and we see people as God sees people. See, when we're given the new heart by the Spirit, we're able to see things as God sees them. We begin with the testing spirits. When God is in the middle term, then we recognize false teaching and attempt to lovingly correct it. We don't correct it because we're just trying to force our will upon them or, or bring them into submission. Rather, we correct out of love. We see the error and we now desire to bring them to know truth and to know their creator. When God is our middle term in relationships, we look beyond preference to see our fellow human who is made in God's image, just as we are. We know our sin, we're not perfect, and neither are they. But when God is our middle term, we can love them despite those faults and failures. When God is our middle term, we are conscious of the lens we view others, and it gives us that measure of grace and mercy towards others because of the amazing grace that God has given to us. So when God is our middle term for love, God abides in us, and we in God. The Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. His love is perfected in us. As John writes in verse 17, in other words, we grow in this understanding and love, not because we're told we must, but we love because we have been changed and understand now this depth of love that has been shown to us by what God has done. So now, a couple big words to, to, to reflect on that you need to know. Indicative and imperative. I've mentioned them earlier, but let me clearly describe them here. Indicative is what you are. Imperative is what you do because of who you are. So in the first three chapters of John's letter, he has been utilizing imperative, what you should do, or giving commands of what you should do to love in particular. But now in verse 11, like I said, this is our transition point, he references the indicative, what you are in Christ, now enables you to love others by saying we ought to love one another. So we love because God has enabled us to love. Amen. Now, God, as our middle term, is this, in, this using it in interpersonal relationships is what gives us the ability to love the unlovable. One of my favorite historical examples of this is a gentleman that I'm confident most of us are familiar with, St. Patrick. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with his story or or don't know uh, the truth of the matter, uh, St. Patrick truly paints a beautiful mural of exactly this point of what I've been saying. 
See, St. Patrick, as you probably do know, he was the first missionary to Ireland. When he was a young man, he was captured by Irish raiders and enslaved. So he spent time as a slave in Ireland. But six years later, he escaped and eventually makes his way back to England, where he eventually becomes a clergyman. So years later, after serving and, and learning about the faith, growing in the faith, Patrick felt a call back to Ireland, saying he heard the cry of the Irish people. He says, or he heard this cry, he says, we beg you, come and walk amongst us again. So Patrick returned to Ireland. Now he could have returned in hate and anger, but he didn't. Instead, he began a lifetime of mission work among the Irish and used his knowledge while he was a slave of the Irish language and the customs he had learned, and he was then able to successfully and effectively minister to the, uh, and, and see the Druid priests convert, tribal chieftains to convert, and even aristocrats and thousands of others in Ireland. And he did that until he died in 461 AD. See, St. Patrick loved the Irish with God as the middle term. Christian love only comes when God is the middle term in our relationships. Once freed from slavery, St. Patrick looked back on his time in Ireland and saw the Irish people through the lens of God. When we use God as the middle term, we will see people through his eyes. And we will have compassion for the lost, just as St. Patrick did. While we may not convert thousands... We will find peace with our neighbor and with ourselves. Looking at this world, its people, and its circumstances through the lens of God as our middle term is what enables us to help us, uh, excuse me, and with the help of the Spirit, now we are able to love as Christians the way God calls us to. Okay. So finally, let's look at the remaining verses here in verse 17, at how, or beginning in 17, excuse me, at how love is now perfected by the power of God. The English word perfected in verse 17, let's read 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. So this word here of perfected in the Greek, teleo, means to bring an end or to fully accomplish or to complete. And John says, by this love is perfected in us and this is the fact that God abides in the believer. With saving faith comes spiritual life. 
the indwelling of God's spirit and the perfection of love by our boldness in approaching God in prayer. The word John used uh, to translate as confidence is the word John used earlier in verse 228 to describe his boldness and our confidence. He says extends beyond now in our prayers to the future when we look forward with confidence at the return of Christ. And verse 18 says the same thing, just in a negative, as a contrast, saying that we have no fear because the love in, in us brought, us by the, brought to us by the Spirit. Now that gives us boldness and also removes the fear of God's judgment. God enables us to look with eager expectation at the coming of our Lord. So we're not afraid of God. Instead, we love God. Love is what we are. When John says we love because he first loved us, he's not stating a command we must obey. Rather, he's revealing the indicative. God has made us new. He's made us new. We are enabled not out of fear, but love for our heavenly Father because of his love for us and the work that it's doing in us. See, fear lives naturally in the natural person, and it needs to be driven out. Agape love, love like God's, is not natural for the fallen person. It is this being made new by the Spirit that gives us godly love. Our ability to love God and neighbors only because God first loved. This love is perfected in us by surrender to the Spirit. And in us, that enables us to love God and our neighbor. Remember, remember God's two greatest commandments. Love God and love neighbor. We'll talk about that a little more here in one moment. And so in verse 20, John continues saying, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John says that this perfect love that makes us long for Christ's return, this perfect love that casts out fear also drives out hate. Drives out hate. But John does not sugarcoat this concept. He is so direct. And he says that if we love God but hate our brothers or sisters, we're liars. As he has said many times already, to claim to know God but to walk in disobedience is a lie in 1.6 and 2.4. And then to claim to possess the Father and to deny the Son is a lie. He said that in John 2, 22 and 23. Or to claim to love God and now hate our brothers is a lie. So notice there are these three lies and they cover three different aspects of the Christian's life. Disobedience is the moral aspect of our lives, how we are to act, how we are to behave, our ethic Denying the Son, 
That's core doctrinal truth, how we view Jesus, right? We even looked at that in testing the spirits. And hating others is now this social interaction, our fellowship of how we relate and commune with one another. So when John concludes in verse 21 by stating the importance of loving brother, it's because that would only be half of the single command to love God and neighbor. Jesus combined two Old Testament commands. Pastor Don alluded to them in his um, readings this morning. Uh, When Jesus was confronted uh, by the lawyers and the Pharisees and asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. All these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. We are people of love because love is the nature of God. His abiding in us enables us to love others by seeing them with a new eyes and with a new heart. So we've learned three lessons from John 4 this morning. We've learned how to test spirits who claim to be godly by the test of love. Secondly, we learned to love others as God loves by looking at everyone we meet with the eyes of faith and a regenerated heart that fills us with compassion and care. And then lastly, thirdly, we've learned that God's love in us is what gives us confidence to boldly approach his throne of grace in prayer, but also to eagerly await his return and enjoy the end of sin and death. To not fear that day because Jesus took our punishment so that we can be loved because of what we are or made new. We're in Christ. We can now love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength and love our others as well because the Christian, because Christians are people of love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this truth. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your love that you've poured out on us. Lord, you have redeemed us and we are grateful. So thank you, Lord, for this truth. And Lord, now I just pray that you continue that work as we know you will. And we ask, Lord, for your continued moving in our lives. So thank you, Lord, for your love And may you empower us and strengthen us to love each other more and more. So thank you again, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.